You're listening to the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast, creating community to foster joy and well-being. Thanks for listening. My name is Ruby Ann Reed Pritchett, and I have a story to tell. My father was in the army and stationed at a small base, Fort Slocum, on an island off of New Rochelle, New York. I have little flashes of memories from those first years. Some are on the beach with my dad, mom, and their friends, putting their beer bottles in a net and tying it to the pier to keep the bottles cold. The soldiers drilling on the field across the street. Little launch I took to get to the mainland to start kindergarten. One other memory of that time was standing on a cement playground at my school and watching a huge balloon pass slowly overhead. Years later, I realized it was the Hindenburg blimp. It crashed on that same day. About that time, my father received orders that he was to be transferred to Schofield Barracks on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. My mother was very excited as she loved new adventures, even though she would be leaving her family in Pennsylvania and knew she wouldn't be seeing them for a long while. We sailed out of New York and made our way through the Panama Canal. The only thing I remember about that trip was sitting on some staircase by the dining room on the ship right before we docked in San Francisco. I was being punished because I refused to drink the powdered milk that was served in the dining room. Hawaii was beautiful, and we quickly made friends. I celebrated my fifth birthday by falling off a box and breaking my arm. My brother Harry, who had been born while we were still in New York, two other children came into the family as years passed. First, my sister Georgiana, and then brother Denny. Life was simple. There were trees to climb, beaches to play on, going to the small town not far away to buy Christmas presents at the dime store. I don't even remember a cold day. My brother and I walked to school, which was not far, but was still off base. Non-military children attended the school also. Some of the children came barefooted. My brother and I decided that's what we should do also. No way would mother allow her children to go to school that way. We got around that issue by ditching our shoes behind a bush and then putting them back on when we got back home. We were discovered pretty quickly, no doubt because of our dirty feet. Sundays always started with a big breakfast, and then Brother and Harry and I would leave early to attend religion classes before the church service. One Sunday, just before it was time for class to start, we heard some unusually loud explosions and the sounds of planes flying very low overhead. Being so close to Wheeler Field, the Army Air Base, we were used to planes and an occasional explosion as the Army held maneuvers in the surrounding area. This seemed different. The priest and the ten or so children that were in attendance stepped outside of the small church to see what all the commotion was about. A plane approached us flying very low. As we looked up, we heard machine gun fire coming from the plane. There was a round red ball painted on the bottom of each wing. The plane was so low we could see the pilot with what looked like a leather helmet with goggles on his head. 
As the bullets hit around us, the priests realized we were in danger and rushed us back inside the church. Somehow arrangements were made, and all of the children were taken back to their homes. In the meantime, the rest of my family had finished breakfast and were preparing to leave for church services when they heard the explosions. My dad thought it was unusual to have bombing practice on a Sunday morning. Looking out, he saw the noise was caused by planes bearing the emblem of the rising sun flying over Wheeler Field, which was located about a mile from our house. A great amount of smoke was rising from that area. The sound of explosions continued. He realized we were under attack from Japan. It was December the 7th. 1941. Construction on a new house to be located behind our property had begun, and trenches had been dug for the footings. That is where my dad herded Mom and the two little ones. The story was told that my mother had on a new suit, and she was most unwilling to lie down in the red mud and ruin that outfit. At some point, the planes flew off, and the family returned to the house. Dad immediately left to report to his duty station. Later he told us that when he got to his company, the men had to break into the padlocked armory in order to gain access to the rifles and ammunition. His company was ordered into the mountains to guard against an enemy invasion, possibly coming through the passes and invading the island. In the meantime, with Dad gone, Mother was in charge. The woman next door had a car, and the two families decided they should drive out to the pineapple fields, getting away from the base, which they thought was likely to be a focus of a next attack. They drove around a while, trying to determine how best to handle the situation. Finally, with no more planes overhead, it was decided that perhaps the best plan was to go back home. An hour later, army vehicles came and picked the families up and took them to one of the cement barracks blocks. I remember the soldiers with their rifles standing guard outside the door. I knew something very unusual was happening, but I wasn't frightened. The soldiers were there. A decision was made by the authorities, and again the families were loaded into vehicles and taken home. Their instructions were to pack a small bag for each person and just wait. At some point, they would be picked up again and taken somewhere safe. After an hour or so, Mother decided to prepare dinner as we were all hungry. As we were just sitting down to eat, our transportation arrived. It was a large, canvas-covered, open-back truck, usually used to transport workers to the pineapple fields. Wooden seats ran along each side with another row in the middle. I remember it was very crowded and there was a baby crying. The women were all very quiet. Well, that is, except for one young woman who kept wailing and having hysterics. Finally, my mother had had enough and told her to get control of herself and help some of the mothers with little ones instead of focusing on herself. I have vivid memories of some of these events, and other stories were told and retold so often that they seem part of my memories. It had grown dark by this time, and the buses were moving sporadically along the road. 
to where we were not sure. There were no headlights shining on any of the vehicles as there was a constant fear of another attack. We would move a little while and then stop in the traffic for what seemed like forever in my child's mind. Some other had brought along a little potty pot, and I got handed through the crowd to be emptied. It got dropped off the back, and my brother hopped out to get it. I think we were lucky to be in the very back of the open end of the truck. As we approached Pearl Harbor, we began to see a rose-colored glow spreading across the horizon. Then we saw the fires, ships burning, small explosions as perhaps the flames reached ammunition, searchlights reaching across the sky, colored flares shooting upward, illuminating the sky even further. The scene made an indelible impression in my mind, like a painted panorama. Shortly after we arrived at a school in Honolulu, we were directed to a classroom where some army cots had been set up. That's where we stayed for about three weeks. The citizens in Honolulu were asked if they could take any families in so we might be a little more comfortable. We were welcomed by one family, but the house was so small, the whole living room was taken up by a bed they had put in there for us. Mother decided the school was better. One by one, the women were called to answer a phone call that would inform them that their husband was okay. Mother kept waiting anxiously for a call for her. Finally, after three weeks, she heard from my dad. He'd been up in the mountains with his men, guarding against a possible attack through the mountain passes, a big concern at the time. As soon as he was relieved from that duty, he was able to make calls and locate us at that school. Of course, we did not see much of him even when we were taken back to our house after that stay in the Honolulu school. Weeks went by. We were told we would be evacuated to the mainland, but we didn't know when. They packed up our furniture, and we kept what we really needed for everyday living. Food was rationed and we were given an allotment based on the family size. Every day it was necessary to walk to the commissary to get that day's ration. This was very difficult for mother with the two little ones, so I was given that job. One day one of the paper bags I was carrying home tore open, canned goods spilled all over the sidewalk. I was across the street from one of the large barrack squares, and a couple of soldiers from the motor pool saw my distress and crossed the street to offer me a ride home. I, of course, was happy to have help solving my problem. I really felt important being driven home in that large, open-top army vehicle. I hope my brother was watching. I knew you would have wanted a ride, too. Christmas came. We had no tree. But Harry and I went out and found a large branch from a pine tree and brought that home to decorate. It was pretty sorry-looking and crooked, but it was our Christmas tree. Our traditional decorations had been packed along with everything else, so we made some paper chains to hang. There weren't any toys that year, but I don't remember being disappointed. The Army dug a foxhole in our front yard that we were supposed to get into if the air raid sirens went off. I remember it looking very deep, and when it rained, one time, there was a frog in a puddle at the bottom. 
I was very happy I never needed to hop down there. Finally, it came our turn to be evacuated to the mainland. Dad came to say goodbye, and we left for the harbor in Honolulu to board the ship. It just happened to be the same ship we'd arrived in. The Matson Line ships had been turned into troop carriers. We got included in that category, I assume. We had arrived in the island with bands playing and were greeted with many flowery lays. But we left very quietly. There was a routine on the ship. Each morning before sunrise, we would have to get dressed, put on our life jacket, and report to our lifeboat station. There we waited in the chill of the early morning until the sun had fully risen. There was great danger of being attacked by submarines, especially at dawn. I cannot imagine how my mother was able to cope with managing my small sister and brother, being seasick and then spraining her ankle. She spent a lot of time in our cabin, and Harry and I free to roam the ship. One time we found our way down to where the young sailors bunked. They welcomed us for a short time until the ranking enlisted man saw us, and we were ushered out. I seem to remember my brother got a sailor hat on that adventure. We arrived safely in San Francisco, and a few days later we boarded a train to head to the East Coast. Mother had decided we would go to her hometown of Shemokin, Pennsylvania, where her parents lived. She was cautioned to not speak of our experience at all in case there were spies around. I'm not sure what a spy would have learned from us, but the government was being very cautious in those first days and months of World War II. One day on the train, my brother decided he would go to the water fountain at the end of the train car. A man approached him and began asking questions about what he had experienced. My mother would have none of that and promptly told the man to mind his own business. There were hours that our train sat on side tracks as troop trains filled with soldiers headed west. Of course, they had the right of way. As we approached our destination, there was only one more short train ride to Shimokin. Mother had somehow managed to have clean clothes for all of us, and we were all ready for the stairs we were going to get upon our arrival in the family neighborhood. Unfortunately, that last train was full of coal dust, covering everything in the coach, including us. All of Mother's efforts were wasted. Things seldom go as planned. Mother's old friend was going to pick us up, but the train times got changed, and she was nowhere to be seen. We found a cab and finally arrived at my grandparents' house. I heard all the neighbors were looking out their windows. Some were surprised when my little sister and brother were not brown-skinned since they were born in Hawaii. Time passed. The war continued. After three years away from us, my father was transferred back to the mainland, and our family was together again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. 